Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Veronica Benavides, the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project. Harvard-educated Doctora of Education Vero Benavides has spent her career exploring and advocating for the intersection of identity, language, and learning. Throughout her career in education, as a high school and middle school teacher, a Fulbright scholar, a leadership coach, and the executive director of a leading early childhood educational research and training center, she's always sought to create strengths-based environments where all people and children thrive. Now as founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project, Dr. Benavides works to support the reclamation and flourishing of heritage languages across global contexts. Through learning resources and cohort-based programs for educators and families, the Language Preservation Project decolonizes language learning to promote bilingualism in homes and schools. In this conversation, Vero and I talk about her own language experiences growing up and what it has been like to speak in Spanish to her two young children. We also discuss what learning a heritage language means for many people and how she supports heritage language learners and speakers through her work with the Language Preservation Project. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vero. Hi, Vero. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to join you today. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you. So uh, to get started, tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Great. Well, my name is Vero, and I am the founder and CEO of the Language Preservation Project. We are an organization that seeks to decolonize the language learning process and to make bilingualism more accessible for heritage language learners that are seeking to uh, retain or reclaim their heritage languages. And I am based in Denmark and in the U.S. So I'm here in Denmark for a part of the year with my partner who's Danish. And I'm also based in Houston, uh, which is where most of our organization operates out of, um, where I grew up. Awesome. Uh, I can't wait to hear more about the project. Uh, but first, I would love to hear about your own language experiences growing up and what role bilingualism played in your life as a child and teenager. Yeah. Well, um, that's a great question because I think so much of my um, work today is informed by these really formative experiences that I had as a child. So I remember, you know, our home was filled with the Spanish language and especially when we were around my grandmother and my family from the Valley, the Rio Grande Valley, we grew up in Houston, but we were always back um, in the Valley visiting our family there. And it was a very Spanish rich environment, but we didn't speak it as kids. Um, even though it was my parents' first language, we only spoke English. And so I, you know, felt that I could understand some stuff, knew some phrases, knew some basic stuff, but really didn't 
understand the language and went through my childhood, you know, through high school, really not seeing or seeing the value or need for Spanish and felt like English was the way to success, the way to college, the way to, you know, improving and upward mobility and all of this stuff that, you know, really were beliefs that were instilled into my parents and then they instilled it into us. And it wasn't until I got to college and really started to see myself, see my culture, see our history reflected in the curriculum that I was like, whoa, like actually who I am and and where I come from is not a deficit and it's a strength. And this is something that has been taken away from us. It's not like a personal failure on my part, but it's a part of a larger system. And and even though it's really hard to learn a language as an adult, that I have some pretty strong foundations and I can do it. Um, and so I became really committed to not only learning the Spanish language, but also getting in more, t- getting in touch more with my culture and where I came from, and also ensuring that children no matter their background, no matter where they came from, saw themselves reflected in their humanity and the humanities of others reflected in the curriculum. You know, as I mentioned, I grew up in Texas and we had, I remember specifically, it's in the seventh grade, you have a full year of Texas history and you can imagine Texas history from the the perspective of curriculum writers in Texas where um, not too many years ago, you saw in textbooks that um, enslaved people were were referred to as workers, right? And mm-hmm. so there's this whole like spin on what history looks like and from whose perspective it's told. And I remember just feeling this deep shame about being Mexican of Mexican heritage and, and where that came from, especially in relationship to that Texas history class. And I, I didn't want anybody to ever feel that um, because it doesn't feel great. And it also has, you know, real impacts as I know, um, having done a lot of work in education and research and all of that. So yeah, um, it's, it's <laughs> deeply informed by, by my experiences growing up. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. What was it like then when you started to, um, study Spanish as an adult, what was the, um, I guess the cultural information you were learning in your classes and what was that experience like um, for you and from what you could tell um, for others in the class as well? Yeah. So I went to um, university at the University of Texas at Austin for undergrad and really, I mean, was introduced to more Spanish and the Mexican culture, not through classes, but through an organization called the Mexican American Culture Committee. And I came across them, like I wasn't looking for them, but as a high, as a a freshman college, you know, new person on campus, I was looking for free food everywhere. And (laughs) they were having free pizza one night and that brought me in the door. And then they were preparing for Mexico's um, celebration of their independence. And they asked me to read a poem. And that poem was just like, so beautiful, so affirming. Um, And it, it, like, 
just the lines still stick with me today and I carry them with the, with me. Like some of them were like, I am a Chicana, I am a brown feminist, I'm wild and free, I'm a liberated Latina. And these were words that I'd never like seen or heard in any type of academic setting in a book. And so I think really my journey back to my language started, the entry point was my journey back to my culture. Um, and so it started with that um, organization, but then I took other classes to really, you know, understand the contributions and histories of um, not only Mexican Americans, but of Asian Americans, of African Americans, of other people that weren't necessarily reflected in the curriculum um, through my K-12 experience. And I took some Spanish classes in uh, university, but really started to learn the language in a more rigorous way when I moved to Mexico as a Fulbright scholar. And that was a couple of years after graduation, after I had received my master's um, in education, had been teaching for a few years, and then moved to Mexico um, and was immersed in the language and, and got to experience it from that perspective. Yeah. I also was a Fulbright scholar and relearn or learned my heritage language. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I did a Fulbright in Italy and I studied um Italian in college, but didn't really feel like I had a handle on the language until I was living there. What was what was that experience like of living in Mexico and using Spanish every day? Um, yeah. I guess linguistically, but also also culturally. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to know your your experience as well and to see if there were any similarities. I think that there was a lot of excitement about this kind of like homecoming. My grandmother always like talked about how she wanted to go back to Mexico, how she like loved Mexico and all of these aspects of it. And I went to Mexico City, not where we're from, which is Guanajuato, but still got to visit there and travel a lot. And um, I was really excited about it. I was also really nervous um, because I look very Mexican and um, like, you know, typically Mexico is like super diverse and I look like some of what you would expect to come from Mexico and um, knew that I would fit in like visually, but also was super afraid of when I would talk that people would be like, what? Why does she sound like that? Or why is she speaking like that? And I, it was so much in my head of like being fearful of making mistakes that I think when I was living there, I didn't really fully take advantage of the immersion experience as I could have. I remember early on when I got there, um, I had a roommate who was Mexican. We you know, spoke in Spanish all the time, super kind, invited me to go on vacation with her family. Um, we were having a great time. And then w- at one point, her dad said, Vero, will you just stop? talking in that American accent, like just stop. And I was like, I, I mean, I can't. So I just like, I just stopped talking. Um, and I became super self-conscious of how I sounded and if everything had an accent and I, you know, I don't think mine was super strong, but I was like, oh my God, this accent is bad. And it, and it says so much about me. Um, and so I learned the language and became, you know, very fluent, but still remember carrying this shame with me as well. And it wasn't like I returned to the U.S., um, completed my doctoral studies. uh, Then a few years after that, had my first child. And it was really when I had my first child, it was this reckoning with my relationship with the language that I was like, am I going to 
pass on this language to my child? And if so, am I going to pass on all of my insecurities and shame as well? Or am I going to pass on my liberation and my resistance and my reconnection and really help my child to see that accents are not a bad thing, um, that mistakes are not terrible, and that having a learner's mindset with the language is just an ongoing, really, you know, part of learning the language. Like lots, I, like I'm still learning stuff about English. And so I really, when I had my child, I think be, had a stronger connection and a better mindset about the language. But I'd, I'd love to hear from you about like what it's like to return to your, you know, um, heritage area and language and, and how that was received. Yeah. So I mean, my heritage language, I guess, is further back. So my mom was born in New York and her parents, her mother was born in Sicily and her father's family was from Sicily. So it's a couple Mm -hmm. generations back. Her parents spoke to each other in Italian, probably a mix of Italian and Sicilian dialect, but they didn't teach it to their children. So my mom knows a couple words in Sicilian that, you know, a parent would say to a child like, oh, my darling, or curse words. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what I knew going into um, college when I started studying Italian. And uh, I had a similar experience as you when I lived in Italy after college, I look Italian. I look like I'm going to open my mouth and speak in fluent Italian without an accent. And of course, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I had my friends were very um, patient with me mostly. And they also really got a kick out of it when I would like say something in Sicilian as opposed to Italian. Um, one thing that surprised me when I was there is that I was fascinated by dialects um, and the differences in languages. Um, and I always wanted to learn things in Sicilian dialect, but there was this attitude that a lot of my friends had of like, oh, Sicilian is, you know, not like we're better than that. We don't speak Sicilian. We speak mm-hmm. Italian. So, Or it yeah. would be like, you know, that's the language that the poor people speak or that like the guys would jokingly say to each other. So the girls would be like, oh, I don't know Sicilian, you know? <laughs> so that was interesting. I didn't expect that attitude towards the dialect. Um, and then I, I, for a little while when I came back from Italy, um, some people told me I had a Sicilian accent when I spoke Italian, which I just thought was funny. And I was happy to not, I mean, of course, I still had an American accent as well, but I was happy to have any kind of accent that wasn't only American when I spoke in Italian. Um, but it was, um, it was, it was really nice to feel more connected to the culture as well. I mean, I, I talk a lot about that on this podcast with guests, how, inextricably linked culture and language are and that you really can't have one without the other. Um, so it was, it was a great way to access the culture and just feel more connected to it. Yeah. When you did a Fulbright, were you teaching or were you doing research? Yeah, I went as a teacher, which was really amazing because, um, I think at the time that I did it, I don't know what the cases now. But the teaching requirement was about 10 to 15 hours a week, uh, which was 
really great. I love the school that I taught out. Uh, it was amazing. Meet a lot of really great friends with teachers and administrators there. Um, got to, you know, hang out with a lot of cool students. But it was also really cool that I had so much time to travel and really explore the country. And it was just, yeah, one of the most amazing, magical times of my life. Because ne never again would I have a job where I only had to work um, 10 to 15 hours a week. Those <laughs> days are are long gone. Right. Same. I, I had the same experience. I think I went, I probably worked 11 or 12 hours a week. And I do remember being uh, a little disappointed that I hadn't been placed in Rome because that just sounded like such an exciting city to be living in. Um, but I was very happy in the end that I had been sent to Sicily because, um, first of all, I didn't know anyone who was a native English speaker. So I spoke mm -hmm. in English to the English teachers that I worked with. But all of my friends, even if they spoke English, like when my parents came to visit, you know, my friends spoke in English to them, but they never spoke English to me. So that was really great. And I remember some people in bigger cities just making friends with expats, and I didn't even have that option, which I probably would have become friends with expats if I had had the option just because you connect easily in, in your native language. But it was really great to kind of be forced to use Italian socially. And I think that made a big difference for me linguistically that year. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. And I think even um, like here in Denmark, for instance, where I um, <laughs> didn't obviously grow up speaking the Danish language, um, it feels even more extreme than, than the situation in Mexico. I was in Mexico City where a lot of people, you know, not as much as here in Denmark, that's an extremely bilingual country, but a lot of people spoke English, right? So if they saw you or heard you struggling with something, maybe would switch over to English. And I think it's so great to be in environments where you are forced to figure out how to communicate um, because that's the only language that that y'all have that's that's shared. And, and here in Denmark, um, people are so, so fluent in English, like native level fluency, um, that it's really, it's wonderful because you can build those, you know, deep connections and navigate the country uh, much more easily, but also really difficult to, um, to find instances for authentic uh, immersion or practice. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So um, what is it like for you now, I guess, linguistically to go between the U.S. and Denmark? Um, I know, like you said, Denmark is very bilingual. Um, yeah. Is there what what kind of shifts happen for you when you go back and forth? Yeah. Um, well, I think Living in Denmark um, has been an incredible example of how bilingualism can happen at a very early age and how it's not like uh, viewed as an impossible, you know, goal or a phenomenon. Whereas, you know, in the U.S., um, only about 20% of the population in the U.S. Is, is bilingual. And globally, the world population is approximately 60% bilingual speaking, you know, more than one language. And so I think in Denmark, they really embody that from early childhood in terms of introducing uh, multiple languages and, and really um, 
creating space for that and and having positive narratives around bilingualism. And so I think that that's a real inspiration. And I think the U.S. is also starting to shift more towards um, creating bilingual environments and um, squashing old myths about bilingualism delays or the difficulty of bilingualism and things like that. And you're starting to see um, structures change around that. Um, also in, in Denmark, like, you know, the country is very much Danish, English, um, bilingual, yet the families will only, you know, they speak Danish at home. And so English is really something that you learn externally. So I think it's also a good example that you don't necessarily need to be the one that's speaking the heritage language or a language to your child, a foreign language to your child to teach it to them, that there are other methods of, of doing that. Um, but I also do see some similarities that are just maybe universal similarities. And I'd love your perspective from your travels and where you're situated about um, language attitudes and how that is just kind of a global thing. It seems like it was your experience in um, in Italy as well. But here in Denmark, well, it's very, you know, Danish English bilingual. There's not as much of a value or a preservation around children that may come in with languages from the Middle East, like Arabic or Farsi. Um, And those languages sometimes are like even suppressed or that they, you know, that there aren't opportunities for children to stay at home for a longer time to cultivate them. They want some of kids that come from certain environments that have exposure to these languages at homes to be integrated into um, the Danish schooling system earlier so that they can get, you know, more Danish language instruction. And so I see that there's a very different attitude around certain languages versus other languages. And it's similar in the U.S. where you can see that there's a certain prestige for certain languages and identities and cultures over others. Um, And that's just, you know, something universally I've seen also in, you know, communities in, you know, instance for instance in Mexico around some indigenous languages versus other languages and, and um, how that plays out. And I think that that's really important to take a step back and think, okay, globally, this is happening and why, and how can we start to shift that narrative? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think there are um, some languages that are seen as beneficial and, quote, good for children to learn and have, and then some languages that are just viewed as not important or even as a hindrance to children, mm-hmm. which is is very sad. And um, I, it's like that attitude that I was saying that my mom didn't grow up learning Italian because her parents only spoke in English to their children. It's the same thing, you know, many decades later that uh, I see a lot. And um, I don't, I don't know where that shift happens, but I do think it's so important to both, you know, educate families that, um, you know, they won't be harming their child if they speak their heritage language at home. In fact, they'll be helping their child and also somehow, you know, influence a shift in the wider cultural conversation of um, changing that this attitude of some languages are good and some languages are not, or some languages are worthier than others. 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's like multiple layers to it. I think there's the societal messaging around, you know, some languages being better or more, you know, tied to success, which was the case for our family. And, you know, my parents grew up in South Texas at a time where they were physically beaten for speaking Spanish and in the school environment. So it's no surprise that they were like, okay, Spanish means bad and English is good. And then when they had kids, they they were told by our teachers that Spanish would confuse us. But but that's the messaging. And then a deeper layer beyond that is my Spanish was the first language of my parents. They were restricted from speaking it in school, but they spoke it at home. And then when they did take a Spanish class in high school, they were told by their teacher from the Midwest to learn Spanish, you know, through a, a second language, that their Spanish was wrong, that it was incorrect, right? There, it was different from the textbook, which was all, you know, based on Spanish from Spain. And so they also grew up with a belief that their Spanish was lesser than other types of Spanish and that it was wrong. And so my mom also told me that, you know, she felt like her Spanish just wasn't good enough. And that's still a, like, a difficulty that we face today when I'm, you know, trying to encourage my mom to speak to my children only in Spanish is that sometimes she feels like it's not, you know, good enough or that she doesn't know the vocabulary or this and that. And I think that there's this maybe like, lack of of enoughness or view of perfectionism around languages that we have to release in order to preserve heritage languages and really to preserve um, connection over perfection, which is what, you know, I think it's incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved what you said earlier about cultivating a learner's mindset. And even that alone is so important to model to children that you don't have to be perfect, that everyone is learning, everyone is still, you know, a work in progress. And I, I talk to parents about that a lot that, um, you know, you can model what it one example of what it looks like to be bilingual or to be multilingual, and, you know, model for children that you're always learning that you don't know everything. And I think that in itself is really important. Yeah, totally. I mean, I started speaking Spanish like consistently every day when I had my um, first child. So even through like from his first days on this world till now, like I've improved a ton just by the fact that I'm using it a lot in a lot of different contexts. And I've always narrated that to my children, even before they could understand that I'm speaking to you in Spanish, but it's not my first language. Um, and you know, it's very normal for me to look up things while we're together and for us to learn a word together, for us to practice using it in different contexts. And for me to tell my children, like, I don't like, I don't know, you're, you know, Niñera, your babysitter from Mexico, it's her first language. So she probably knows better than me. And this is how they say it. And, you know, there and in other countries, they say it this way. And so I think really um, normalizing that from from early on has been a real help for us. Yeah. So tell me, tell me more about the experience of raising your children with three languages. And I guess what it was like when your first child was born, if it's different now and and what multilingualism looks like in your family. 
Yeah. Uh, so multilingualism for us um, means that my uh, partner speaks only Danish to our children and I speak only Spanish, um, except, you know, if there's something like really difficult that I can't express in Spanish, um, I do it in English, but mostly it's only Spanish. And then we speak to my partner and I speak to each other in English. And so the, at, in the beginning, um, with our first child, and I think with our second now she's two, she's, she's really just bilingual. She doesn't really understand that much English, but But for a while, my husband and I, we had like a secret language, like English was our mm -hmm. secret language, like our kids didn't understand. It. And now um, our our son, um, he just turned five. He's, you know, fully trilingual, speaks Spanish, um, Danish and English pretty fluently. And um, yeah, it's it's been something that I think consistency has been really important. We think a lot about like, what are the different language inputs Um, thinking about, you know, the fact that when he's in Denmark, most of the time, it's mostly Danish community input. So what are the different um, factors that we can bring in to help with the Spanish input? We haven't been too focused on English, honestly, um, because it's such a dominant language and he's picked it up pretty naturally just being surrounded by it. Um, so really for us, it's a focus on Danish and Spanish and really, um, really, focusing on that. And for our daughter right now, she's two, um, it's Danish and Spanish. And she, you know, has just moved out of the phase where she might've more frequently used the languages, um, you know, in a single sentence together where she's using Danishly, Danish just, um, exclusively with my husband and Spanish just exclusively with me. Um, and I was a little bit worried about my second because I know, oh, well, sometimes the second, child just speaks in one language to um, their sibling and it's the dominant community language. And I was like, maybe, you know, she's only going to speak Danish and not really Spanish. But um, I was also pretty explicit with my son that like, you know, you really need to speak in Spanish to Sonia because she doesn't really get to talk to it with anyone else besides you and me. And so he's pretty good about speaking to her in Spanish, um, especially when it's just us three. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been, I, when I started this journey, especially the first year or so with my son, I was like, oh my God, am I doing everything wrong? Am I effing up my kids? Um, <laughs> but on the other side of things, um, it works out. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and what is your language relationship with your family now? You mentioned that you encourage your mom to speak only in Spanish with your children Did the languages that you used with your family change after your experience living in Mexico or what is that like now? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, so, so definitely with my grandma, it was only like a very basic um, conversations that I could have with my grandma because she spoke Spanish and I spoke English. And then after really um, learning the language, I was able to unlock a whole other side of our relationship and, and really learn a lot about her and our family history. So that was amazing. And um, it But with the rest of my family, it stayed pretty English um, until I had my kids. And then the relationships changed because I was much more intentional about what the language inputs were going to be for my children. 
And so when I'm speaking to my mom without my kids around, it's pretty much just a mix of English and Spanish. Um, but if my kids are around, it's always Spanish. And with my dad, it's always Spanish with my kids. Um, and then my siblings have like a mix of fluency in the language. So my sister, and this is also pretty common in a lot of um, you know families that have heritage languages. My sister had the strongest relationship to Spanish. She was the oldest. Um, and she spent a lot of time with my grandma. So she's actually a bilingual um, bilingual teacher, kindergarten teacher. And so she very easily speaks in Spanish with my children. Um, my brother, who's the next oldest, uh, he speaks some Spanish, but I would say it's like street Spanish and construction mm -hmm. Spanish. So it's like a much harsher Spanish that I'm like, don't say that to my kids. Uh, <laughs> but he's like teaching them another side of Spanish. Um, and then my sister is the next oldest and she really doesn't like speak that much Spanish at all. Um, so she speaks to them in English um, or, you know, for my two year old, if there's, you know, basic things that she needs, you know, they can communicate in some basic Spanish. But I think it's also great that, you know, she can communicate in the language she's most comfortable with. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Language Preservation Project and what inspired you to start it. Yeah, so I uh, came up with the idea for the Language Preservation Project in 2021, the end of 2021. But really, I think it's been just a culmination of so many experiences that I've had, as I mentioned, from like, you know, being in school and feeling um, not fully connected to my identity and culture and then, you know, experiencing that deeper connection and, and really wanting to pass that on to the next generation. And when I was on maternity leave with my, um, with my second child, my daughter, Sonia, I was just really kind of looking for so much more like connection and um, resources for heritage language learners and it was so hard to find it. I, I really wanted to see like someone that was like, I'm a heritage language learner. Um, I don't speak my language perfectly. And yet I still decided to raise or teach bilingual children. Um, and that I felt like was a real gap. I didn't see that. I saw a lot of like non-native heritage, uh, non-native, not heritage, but non-native speakers then learning a language and passing it on. But I felt like that didn't really speak to my experience. I think for me as a heritage language speaker, I had a very different relationship to the language and culture that was just wrapped up in all of this historical and, and you know, familial um, relationships around the language. And I wanted to connect with others who, who felt similarly. And um, also just had been diving into the research and saw that, you know, 30% of children go into schools with the foundations of bilingualism, speaking their heritage language, and a lot of them don't come out bilingual because of either mm -hmm. lack of programming or their parents decide not to enroll them in a program. Um, and most heritage languages are lost by the third generation, um, as you've experienced in your family. And so I really wanted to start an organization that started to reverse that trend and provide an alternative way 
to be in relationship to our heritage languages. So the Language Preservation Project was born soon after that, and we've just um, completed a year of being in operation, and it's been great and exciting. And I think there's just a lot of resonance for people that have been looking for a community and resources like this. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing that I definitely think there is a need for that. And um, I've experienced people even just learning the term heritage language Mm -hmm. feel so validated. Um, I don't think it's a term or a concept necessarily that unless you're looking for it or unless you're immersed in the world of language research or information, I don't think many people even know about it. And so I think there is a lot of shame surrounding um, speaking or not speaking a heritage language. And I've found that even just hearing the term and learning about it, um, people find so reassuring and validating. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I think just starting to make that term more available and have more visibility around heritage language and what relationships look like that around that is really important. I think I went into the world of raising a multilingual child without really understanding my relationship to my heritage language or what it took to raise a child in my heritage language given all of the complexities around that identity. And so I think it's I think it's also a big part of our work is just, you know, raising those narratives and visibilities and saying there are so many different ways to go about this. And here are some examples of how it's been done. And it just and it doesn't have to be the inevitable that each language is just lost a little bit more and more and more after each generation. What do you think are the biggest challenges or hesitations for adults who are reclaiming a heritage language? Yeah, um, I think some of the biggest challenges or hesitations that I've experienced and also we've experienced and seen from the folks that we work with is around uh, a shame of the heritage language and maybe believing that the loss of their heritage language or maybe the maintenance or the lack of fluency or that it's not perfect is solely personal failure. And I, you know, a really important part of this work. And when we, we work with educators and families across the U S through our language preservation collectives in our first unit, we look at the history, power, and politics of language. And we really understand how languages and linguistic and cultural diversity were removed, were stripped, oftentimes forcibly in different communities in order to disconnect people from their people, from their culture, um, and from their communities. And so really understanding the systemic part of this, I think, is a critical part of people understanding that, okay, this is not like a not enough problem. This is not solely a personal failure problem, that this was a part of a larger system. And yet this was terrible. And yet there is a path forward. And yet there are people reclaiming and preserving heritage languages across a variety of different contexts. And this is what it looks like. It doesn't look like maybe what I've experienced in the past, past with language learning of 
flashcards and, you know, grammar books and things like that. It looks like really building a love for the language, a relationship with the language, a feeling of playfulness around the language in order to access all of that. And I think that's incredibly important for adults to unlock and then they can unlock and model that for children. I think that's just the really the first step with language learning is relational. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what kinds of resources can people find on your website? And um, what kind of work do you do with schools or organizations as opposed to individuals? Yeah. Um, so most of our work right now is through schools and organizations, um, and we run six or 12-week cohort-based programs um, to help families or er educators preserve heritage languages in their homes or their communities. And we do that through um, courses that, you know, build skills and capacities. Um, we um, provide them with some curriculum, child-facing curriculum, um, and we also, you know, come together for communities of practice to talk about application and what we've learned. And um, we are across the U.S. And you never know, like next year we could be in your community. We've worked in um, Antonito, Colorado, Denver, Colorado. We're launching work in Houston. Um, and we've been in Asheville, North Carolina. Who knows what the next year could bring? So I really would recommend that you hop on our website um, and join our mailing list because the the or schools and organizations that we work with then provide this programming, um, allow us to provide this programming to individuals for free. So it's not something that you uh, pay for, which is great. So please hop on our website, join our mailing list, and you'll be the first to know of opportunities that can um, show up in your community or follow us on all of the socials. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, and I would also say like, if we're not in your community, we have a ton of resources that are available for educators and families that um, you could download, download and gain access to like book guides. Uh, we have a real focus on like culturally responsive materials and curriculum. We know that there's like a real gap in access to resources around that. Um, I will say because we're a small team and this is our first year, all of our resources are currently in Spanish, English, but hopefully as the years grow and our teams grow, um, we'll be able to expand to other languages soon. Do you have any advice for families who maybe are interested in advocating for bilingual education programs in their community. Does that usually happen at a school board level? Do you have any insights into that and what parents can try to do to um, advocate for more programs like that? Yeah, great question. I think it really depends on your community. It really, because each, just because the education system in the U.S. is so decentralized, right? Mm. So it could, you know, happen on a school level if your principal has access to fundings and, you know, could hire bilingual teachers and, and your principal is one that's making decisions about that. Um, it could happen at a district level. Um, it could happen, you know, that it needs to go through school board approval. And so I would say the first step would be to figure out in your community, what the entry point is. And then I would figure out, have conversations with other people of who else wants to do this. And really, I, I used to be a community organizer. There's so much power in collective action. And so really 
build that community of other like-minded folks that really see the benefits of bilingualism, dual language education. And I think if you are able to build that support at whatever level it is, if it's a school level, if it's the district level, if it's you know some other level, that with that level of mobilization, you would be able to bring in some type of programming, whatever format it is for bilingual education into your community. And I would also add that if you are not in an environment where bilingual education can happen, that that also isn't a deterrent to raising bilingual children, that there are a lot of other ways to do it as well um, outside of the school environment. Mm, Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, So as a a mother of two multilingual children, what advice would you share for parents interested in either continuing to raise their children with more than one language or to introduce a second or third language? Yeah. Um, I would say be kind to yourself. Parenting is like a really intense journey responsibility. And then adding on top of that, multilingual parenting is another layer. And so I would say be kind to yourself, approach it in a really playful manner um, and have have fun with it. Be consistent and have fun. Mm, yeah, I love that. I think that um, it's easy to lose the fun sometimes when you feel a lot of pressure to do something, mm-hmm. quote, the right way. Uh, so I think that's an important reminder that um, – you can find the fun in it for you and for your children. Exactly. Um, so what what encouragement or advice would you share for someone who's interested in learning or relearning their heritage language? I, I guess I would just say what I wish I heard, that you are enough just as you are. You are enough right now with the level that you – speak or have a relationship you have to your heritage language and you will be enough when you speak more or or have more of a relationship with it. I think really just feeling confident in yourself, um, confident in your story and your journey and releasing the shame and also coming back to having fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about or that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share today? Uh, I, I We talked about so much. Thank you for such a great conversation. I would, I don't know if I meant, maybe I did. I think one thing I just would add is that we also just launched a podcast called Talking to Grandma um, and it's named mm. Talking to Grandma because I couldn't talk to my grandma growing up until I unlocked my heritage language. And so if you are more interested in stories specifically around heritage language, we speak to a mix of parents, educators, researchers around the topic of heritage language loss and preservation and and their own journeys as as a source of inspiration, as a source of information, and as a source of hope. So check it out. It's called Talking to Grandma. Oh, wonderful. I love that. Do you often have um, pairs of people like mother and child uh, or, you know, adult child, or do you mostly talk to one person at a time? 
Yeah, great question. So we mostly talk to one person at a time, but for season two, we have a wonderful um, pair guests coming up of mother and child of of mother who came in uh, to the U.S. with their heritage language and um, her daughter like learned, but also lost it, as I mentioned, going into those schools, like spoke it, but then lost it when she went into the school mm-hmm. um, system. And then um, now with her own child has like relearned, reclaimed and is passing it on. So uh, we'll have that beautiful um, mother daughter daughter conversation on season two. Oh, awesome. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this information and your own experiences today. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It was really fun. Thank you again to Veto for joining me in this conversation. You can follow the Language Preservation Project on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Links to their website and socials are in the episode description. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.